Father, we know that it is only your spirit that can open the eyes of our heart. And so, Lord, we ask that your spirit would be with us today, that you would open our minds and our hearts to the truth of your word. Lord, as we approach Scripture, we do proclaim that we do believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe that He has the power to open our hearts. So, Lord, we pray for those of us who are believers that You would use the Scripture to sanctify us, to change us, to mature us in the faith. And for those who don't know Christ, we pray that the Holy Spirit would move in them for faith and repentance so that they would be justified before You. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. We're so blessed to study His Word together. I thank God always for the privilege it is to stand before you and preach and for all of you who come with such willing and desirous hearts to learn and study and apply the truths of the Word is a true blessing. The section of Matthew 21 that we're looking at as well as the four following sections to the end of the chapter are all about Jesus' attitude toward false religion. Our section today is the cleansing of the temple. The next is the symbolic cursing of the fig tree. And we have the direct challenge by the Jewish leaders to Jesus Verses 23 to 27. Then the last two sections of the chapter, Jesus gives us two consecutive parables to warn the people about the religious leaders and subsequently us about false religion. And why is Jesus doing this now? Why is Jesus suddenly talking about false religion at a time when He's headed to the cross? First, He is the one in charge of His death. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus, uh, Jesus said, John reports in John 10, 18, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. In other words, he will be killed on his terms. He will die when he has chosen to die. And so Jesus, in essence, is coming to Jerusalem. He's set his face like flint to Jerusalem to die on that cross, and so he's doing what he needs to do in terms of stoking the, the anger of the religious leaders so that he would end up on the cross at the right time. In fact, you find this at the end of the chapter. Jesus was successful, verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him, and held him to be a prophet. So he what he did worked, so he was protected there momentarily. What he did worked in terms of them wanting to arrest and kill him. But another reason I think that Jesus is talking about false religion, and I think this is Matthew's point here, the point we'll be looking at the next few weeks, is that Jesus, knowing that he will die soon, is seizing his final chance to warn the people about false religion, which is rampant in Israel in that day and, of course, rampant in our own day. He wants to call them to join Him in taking a stand against false religion, against the religious leaders, against the false lies that they had propagated all throughout Israel. Here He is in Jerusalem at Passover, and everyone's missing the point. Here He is as the fulfillment of promise, and everyone is missing the point. Here He is to lay down His life, the hope of Israel, setting up the kingdom, atoning for sin, reversing the curse 
the Lamb of God, and the best they can say of him is that he is a prophet. They don't get it. Why? Because of false religion. And though that religion had the veneer of biblical Judaism, it is not biblical at all, thanks to these religious leaders and the lies that they had taught all throughout Israel and peddled to the people of God. So this is what Jesus is doing in this chapter. And we're going to take this section by section to teach us, to warn us of false religion, help us see that if we indeed take up our cross and follow after Jesus, we are dead set against the world's thinking, we're dead set against the world's perspectives, the world's philosophies, the world's most popular religions, including false forms of Christianity, the world's political ideals. If we follow Jesus, we're setting ourselves against the world's religions and their leaders. All right, the first section is where we left off last week, Matthew 21, verse 12. I'll read down to verse 17. This is the cleansing of the temple. Very familiar story to a lot of us. Follow along as I read aloud. And as Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who sold and bought the temple, He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the Word of God. There are two stories from Jesus' childhood. Both of them occurred in the temple. You're probably familiar with these two stories. After the birth narrative, these two stories are the only two incidents we have in Jesus' childhood all the way until He began His ministry. They're found there in Luke 2, right after the birth narrative. The first story is just eight days after Jesus was born. It was Jesus' ritual circumcision there at the temple. Up on that temple mount, there's not some huge celebration. There's not some recognition of who He was. In fact, they were nobodies so to speak, and they came onto the Temple Mount. No one recognized him or them, with the exception of a couple of elderly saints, elderly believers whom God had given some sort of direct revelation that this Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the long hoped for, the long promised Messiah. Simeon and Anna praised God for this. All that symbolism of the temple, all that was happening at the temple, all that they did, the sacrifices, even going on to uh, what was happening that day, the, the circumcision and moving forward to the biggest celebration, Passover, all of it pointed to this little baby. And Simeon and Anna rejoiced in that day and sang songs and celebrated this child. He's the subject of all the temple's worship. In the very next section of Luke 2, Jesus is now a 12-year-old, and he's with his family at Passover there at the temple. Without getting too bogged down on the details, Jesus ends up discussing with the leaders there, the teachers, the priests, others that were there, probably Levites, scribes, 
perhaps somewhere in the camp of Pharisees or Sadducees, and it says he was, quote, sitting among the teachers, listening and asking questions, and all who heard him were amazed. It's clear again, Jesus is the fulfillment of temple worship. He's a consummation of all the things that happened inside that temple. All the worship in the temple is about Him. Biblical worship ultimately is about exalting Jesus Christ, and not just any Christ, the Christ that's presented to us in the Bible. And I think Jesus figures this out. I think one of the reasons we have this, and it's just sort of reading between the lines, I think this is what Jesus is coming to in terms of His mental capabilities, growing in terms of His stature and wisdom. He's growing, and He, I believe, comes to this conclusion, I am indeed the Christ. His place as God, as deity, as the Redeemer, as the Messiah, is to be worshipped. He is the, the pinnacle of worship. He's the purpose of all of that worship and activity that happened right there in the temple. That biblical worship, of course, had been corrupted. When biblical worship is corrupted, it generally follows a three-step path. The first thing that happens is that biblical truth is ignored, biblical truth is neglected, sometimes misinterpreted. God's Word loses its authority. God's Word is lost. You even see that happening in the history of Israel. That Literally, the, the Bible, the, the writings of the inspired prophets are being lost. So what you're left with is empty religion. Empty religion can manifest itself in terms of empty emotions, emotions without truth, un, unguided, unbordered by truth. It can also manifest itself in empty ritual, just cold, heartless, Ritual, both of which we see in Judaism or corrupted Judaism. Now, that's the first step. The, religious, the religion becomes devoid of truth. It also becomes emotions. The focus becomes ritual, empty formalities, worship for the sake of worship, rituals for the sake of rituals, all heartless, meaningless because there is no guidance and truth. The second thing that happens is false teachers begin to invade. As the Bible goes away, the false teachers come in with their own version of truth. There are no biblical standards. There's no measure to measure the false teachers against. And these are opportunistic swindlers. They step in. They have their own version of truth. Usually it's truth mixed with error. And it becomes clear with any serious inspection, they are in it for themselves. They're in it for the fame and the power and the money and the position that this affords them. And they use their offices, and they use that religion, and they use the, the people who want to do what's right. They use that system to steal money and steal power from people. The third step is that the whole endeavor becomes a false religion. By virtue of having little biblical truth and having an abundance of false teachers it becomes a false religion altogether. It may fly the flag of something that is biblical. There may be verses, there may be jargon, there may be outward professions, there may be words used and terms used that seem biblical. But any truth that is there is twisted and obscured, and the movement is altogether false. It is a false religion. Well, this is clearly what had happened in Jesus' day to Judaism. Truth had been abandoned. False teachers had swooped in, and the whole religion had become a false religion. Oh, they had the language of the Bible. They had some of the rituals of the Bible. They even had Bible experts running around. They called them scribes. 
But Jesus saw, I believe, from a very young age that this was a false religion. How do we know that he believed this? Well, inside the first couple of months of Jesus' ministry, he went up to Jerusalem for the Passover at the temple. It's likely at this point he did not have all 12 of his disciples yet. He had only performed, according to John, he had only performed one miracle, and that was up in Galilee. And Jesus there with his first few disciples went up to Jerusalem, up to the temple for the feast of Passover. John tells us, beginning in chapter 2, verse 13, that Jesus came up to the temple upon this scene, this same scene. All over the temple were people selling oxen, sheep, pigeons. Pigeons were sold, by the way, for those who didn't have the money for lambs or something larger like lambs or goats. And there were leaders there who were changing money. Jesus, John says, took some material, probably some leather straps, made a whip of cords. He began to crack that whip. doesn't say that he was whipping people with it, by the way. We don't know that he had any kind of violence toward people. But he cracked the whip probably to get their attention, to run them off. He turned over the money changers' tables and shouted, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And that happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is making clear that this religion, which used to be biblical, which used to be true, had been replaced with this false religion. The Judaism of the Bible had been replaced with false Judaism. This all happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Our passage today happens three years later. Three years of Jesus' teaching, three years after doing miracles, tens of thousands of miracles, Three years of him providing for people, his kindness to people, his feeding of masses of people, tens of thousands of people healed. Three years of the most wonderful ministry that the world would ever see. Three years of the best preaching that the world has ever seen. And nothing had changed. That old false religion stood firm. So today we're watching Jesus in his final week to confront this same false religion that was there all along, the false teachers of Israel. And he does not do this with the spirit of compassion and compromise and mercy, seeking some sort of middle road, not one bit. You can feel it. Jesus' teeth are clenched. He is full of righteous indignation. I wrote in my notes here, bonus material. Let me give you some bonus material. This is just off the cuff. If you follow Jesus' ministry, and this is a very important fact we need to see as Christians. If you follow Jesus' ministry, what you will find is this is his attitude toward false religion and false teachers. It is not his attitude toward people caught up in false religion. Have you noticed this? Jesus has anger. He has no mercy. There is no compromise. There is no compliment. There is no, well, there's some good things in this religion. There is none of that kind of talk. When it comes to false religion, Jesus puts his foot down. He has a spine. He has anger against what, what false religion is doing in Israel. 
It is all supposed to, to cause people to worship Him, to see Him as the Messiah, and it's corrupted, it's wrong, and there's all these people making tons of money. We'll see this in a moment. Making tons of money off the people of Israel. And Jesus is downright angry at what these false teachers and what this false religion is doing. But Jesus immediately turns around. Even in our own passage, He immediately turns around and has mercy on the very people who are caught up in the religion. This gives us a little bit of a template. I know it's not perfect. It doesn't work itself out perfectly in your life. But when it comes to, to talking to people caught up in false religion, we show mercy and kindness and warmth. We are gracious to them. We give things to them. We bless them. We are calm with them. But when it comes to false religion and false teachers, we grow a spine. And we are firm. And we put our foot down. We see that people's Eternity is at stake. We see the deception and the lies, and we, and we, we grow frustrated about this. We, we are not happy with this situation all across the world. Jesus sees this, and I believe this is a good template for us. All right, that's bonus material. Won't be on the test. And I think this plays into the way Jesus treats the world, and I think it helps us understand how we are to to go about in terms of evangelism, in terms of how we deal with people caught up in false religion. We show great kindness and mercy, but that doesn't mean we do not have a spine. Some of you need to grow a spine. Some of you need to grow compassion in your heart towards those caught up. I think we all need a little bit of instruction from what Jesus does here. All right, let's get to what happened here. If you traveled east uh, toward Jerusalem, as though you're coming from Jericho, if you traveled east toward Jerusalem, once you got over the peak of the Mount of Olives, the first thing that you would see, the first thing that would be most obvious is the Temple Mount. That's even true today. You come over the Mount of Olives, which stands over. It's a little bit higher than Mount Moriah, where the temple is built. It would be very noticeable. It would be very huge. It was actually bigger and more prominent in Jesus' day than it is now. But if you did this today, you would still see this. You'd come over Mount of Olives, and you would see this giant palisade, this giant plaza, this rock plaza. And, of course, now on the very top of it, in the middle, is the Dome of the Rock. That's that gold dome. The Muslim Palestinians own the Temple Mount, and there's a bunch of mosques up there now. That's what covers this. The Jews don't get to go up there. There's no worship there. That's why they have the Western or the Wailing Wall. Some of you have been to Israel. You've seen this. Uh, the Jews are trying to get as close to where the temple was as possible, so they go upon that Western Wall where the temple would have backed up to, and they pray. But they're not allowed up there. That's all Muslim now, and that's what you would see as you come across and over the Mount of Olives, you would see the very thing that Jesus saw, that giant plaza. Now, it was different, of course, in Jesus' day, and I would say far more magnificent and far more beautiful in Jesus' day than it is today. Herod the Great, we've talked about him before. He likes to uh, build things. He did construction proje projects for his own glory, for his own power, and sometime around 20 B.C., he decided it would be a good thing to do a major renovation and overhaul of the Jewish temple. So using the stones that Solomon had laid down and the people after the exile had built upon, he turned that into this giant plaza, this huge plaza. Just to give you an idea how big it is, those of you who haven't been there, it's 37 acres. I think that's like 28 football fields. It's giant. In Jesus' day, around the perimeter of this giant square or rectangle was a, 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 a portico, a whole bunch of columns with a roof on it. These columns, every single one of them, circling the whole thing, every single one of them was 18 feet in diameter. That's about six feet thick and about four stories high. 
This is a massive... There was nothing like this in the ancient world. There were, there were big things in Rome, but nothing like this. This was a sight to behold. This is a giant, beautiful thing. By the way, all those columns were solid marble shipped in. I mean, Herod the Great went, spared no expense in building this thing. It took dozens of years for him to complete this. In fact, some people believe that it was not entirely completed when Jesus came around. All these things are built to have this giant plaza, and of course in the middle of that plaza, by the way, that plaza would have been called, it, it, that all was part of the temple, that plaza would have been the first sort of section of the temple called the court of the Gentiles. So Gentiles who were proselytes, who had come to know uh, God through Judaism, they, that's where they would conduct their worship, the court of the Gentiles. In the middle of that plaza, of course, was the temple building itself, around which were other different courts. That temple, by the way, was about 170 feet wide, 170 feet long, and about 200 feet tall. So it was kind of a longish line, a rectangle up on end. Now that gives you a visual of what's going on. What was happening in that day that Jesus went there? Well, it's Passover week. So this place is teeming with people. There are thousands of people. Can you imagine? Even on 37 acres, how many people, how many tens of thousands of people were up there to do their Passover tasks? What were the Passover tasks? What were people required to do during uh, Passover week? Well, for one thing, you had to pay what's called the, pa uh, the Passover or the temple tax. That was something that was required of every Israelite. You would pay a certain amount per, per adult male, and you had to pay it because they did not want to uh, stain the process you had to pay it in an unmarked coin or a coin without any kind of reference to paganism. Uh, the Roman coins of the day would have had an image of Caesar on it. Caesar, of course, considered himself to be part God, part man. And so you couldn't pay the temple tax in, in Roman money. You had to get it changed into some other kind of money. The money that they chose during the time of Jesus was Tyrian coin. You remember the, the, the area of Tyre and Sidon, which was north of there in, in modern-day Lebanon. It was sort of a generic coin that they would change it to there. They would change their money, and then they would go to the priests or the Levites, and they would pay their uh, temple tax. Another thing that you had to do if you were a Jew and you lived in that day during Passover week was to have your animal inspected by the religious leaders. You had the Levites had to inspect to make sure your animal was indeed a pure animal. Mosaic law stated the Passover lamb must pass a series of tests Again, to symbolize the purity of the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate Lamb of God. So again, you can imagine the lines of people, they're getting their money changed. They're getting their animals inspected. Hundreds of thousands of people doing this that week. Again, you remember uh, the number we saw some years later after Jesus, not very long after, but some years later after Jesus, there were 260,000 lambs, and they would have all been inspected all these lambs inspected. So you can imagine during that week the, the crowds all teeming, all crowded, all moving around, getting their lambs inspected, paying, uh, changing their money, paying their temple tax, doing, uh, taking care of other things. And you can imagine what kind of extortion that could have happened up there as well, right? Well, the money changing would be the first way you could extort people. Jesus did not turn the tables over simply because money was being changed, but because money, 
because that process of changing money was used to extort people. Most of you have traveled to foreign countries. Where's the worst place to change your money? It's in the airport, right? People always want to get off the plane. Sometimes you have to, you don't have a choice, but get off the plane and you go over and change your money. There's always a bank window and it gives you the absolute worst rate possible. And then they charge you several fees on top of that. Well, this is exactly what the Levites and the priests and the religious leaders were doing. They were giving the people the worst possible rate of exchange. Then we're giving them a one-to-one change. By the way, that broke God's law. God told the people of Israel not to charge one another interest in situations like this. You cannot charge interest. And yet they were breaking God's law. Ostensibly following this other law of God, they were breaking God's law. Charging interest, usurping the people, not giving the people the right exchange rate. And then, of course, you can imagine what would happen with the animals. You'd save this animal. Maybe you came from Galilee and you brought your animal down and you would go to the temple and it was all a lot of trouble to travel with this animal and to make sure this animal stayed clean and pure and it was the right kind of animal and you made sure and you protected this animal and you got to the temple and the priest said, well, sorry. Kind of like some of the people inspecting your cars, right? Your tires are out of date. The headlights a little foggy. Now that's what these inspectors at the temple would do. And so what eventually took place is the people would say, you know what? The priests are offering us to just buy animals, their animals that they have already said are pure. We might as well not even bring our animals, just buy animals from them. Again, of course, these animals were sold at exorbitant prices. Ridiculously overpriced animals. And so that was another way that they were extorting money from the people. For the poor people of the day, and you read historical records, for the poor people of the day, Passover was a major expense for them. Some people could have spent as much as half of their annual income just on Passover because they were required to change their money and to buy the right animal. It would make them even poorer than they were before. And you can imagine from the religious leader's side the kind of money that they were making. I mean, they were making money hand over fist. This was a very lucrative time of year. This was Christmas for them. I mean, they were making so much money. Uh, a friend and I were talking this week about all the, the fireworks in Hawaii. They're like 99.99% illegal. And we were just talking about how do they get here? Well, they've got to go to the mainland somehow because you can't ship straight from Asia. They go to the mainland somehow. Someone is paid. They're put on containers. They're shipped here. And you just think about all the different people whose pockets are being lined. All the different people. This is a multi-million dollar business and all these people are involved just to get these fireworks here. You can take that and multiply it by a thousand and what you have is Passover. This corrupt thing happening. All these people making money. And it's all these religious leaders. You see why Jesus was angry? This was all supposed to be about Him. This was all to incite in them an understanding of the Word of God and to worship Yahweh and understand the Messiah and learn about truth and, and, and look for the Messiah. And the religious leaders, leaders had turned this into a business where they made Tons of money bilking the people. They used the law. They used the temple. They used this beautiful feast not to listen, listen and to worship, worship God, not to await the Messiah, not to study the Word, not to live humbly, awaiting their Messiah, but for selfish gain. They abused the whole system to gain riches and power. And so their worship was hollow. It was vacant. There was, it was just a means for selfish gain I don't know about you, I'm getting mad just thinking about it. 
Passover was a scam. Passover that should have been this beautiful thing was a big scam. The religious leaders, priests, Levites, others, I imagine all those on Sanhedrin, which would have included the different parties of Pharisees and Sadducees, making tons of money on their crooked practices at the temple and Passover. Well, let's keep moving. Mark says, uh, tells us that the night before, just before the triumphal, uh, just after the triumphal entry, Jesus' and disciples went up to the temple. So they had the triumphal entry. We said that last week. They went down, went to the temple, and it just says Jesus looked around. Someone said Jesus was casing the place. He was just looking around like, where am I going to turn over some tables? What am I going to do? It's most likely he did not make a jog around the entire temple turning over all the tables he saw. He probably found a concentrated place or maybe there was a central area where he could go and make his announcement and preach his sermon and turn over tables. So Jesus goes up, he looks around the night before, they go back to Bethany, and the next day Jesus goes back to the temple. That takes us to verse 12 here in Matthew 21. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written... My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. You get the picture here. He goes in. Imagine some of his disciples following unknowingly what Jesus was going to do. What are you going to do, Master? And maybe some others were saying, oh, not again. This is so embarrassing when he does this. Jesus goes in. He storms right at the thickest part of where the trade is happening, where the changes are happening. He starts tumping over tables. You ever seen someone knock a table over that's full of stuff? Tables are flying, their seats are flying, stuff is falling down everywhere. If he did what he did the first time, he had a whip that he was cracking, getting everyone's attention, driving people away. Comparing this again to Mark's account, it says in Mark that he, he stopped traffic which, by the way, was against the law. The, the Mosaic law said you cannot use the temple as a pathway. I want to get to that side of the city. You have to go around the entire temple. You can't use the temple as a pathway. It's a big place. It'd be easy to be tempted to go right through it. And that's what all this travel, all this commerce is going through the temple. Jesus stops everybody in their path. Everything halts. Then what happens? It says in verse 14, he began to heal people. He was healing. People knew that this, what he had done was right. It was righteous. People understood. I believe people, the people that were caught up in the false religion, they knew this couldn't, can't be right. This can't be. I hate how much this cost me. This, this hurts me. This is injurious to my family. Why, why would I have to go spend so much money on a lamb when I have one that, that passes all the tests? They see Jesus' act, his anger, his indignation to the false religion as an act of mercy. They see this as an act of kindness, and so what do they do? They respond to that mercy by bringing to him people to be healed. They see this as merciful and kind. And essentially, they're saying, Jesus, since you're in the mood of kindness and mercy, we're going to bring our deaf people, our blind people, we're going to bring our lame people to you. And Jesus begins to heal people there. They saw that Jesus' righteous indignation was an act of mercy toward them. It says, then he said to them, the word indicates, it wasn't just saying a, a, a few things that he taught and preached. Mark even says he taught them. He started preaching, and his sermon essentially is what it, 
But he says up there in verse 13, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. There's some irony here. Jesus is pointing something out. They're up on that palisade, the court of the Gentiles, the court of all the nations. The Jews, according to the Old Testament, were to call all people to come worship Yahweh. They were the ones with the one true God, and yet they were the ones who were making it corrupt. They were turning the worship of God to a false religion. Religious leaders had corrupted Judaism. They had used the words and the notions of the Old Testament worship and even the Passover for self-serving ends. He's looking into their hearts. They're not listening to the Word. They're not following the Word. They're not denying themselves and taking up the cross and looking for the Messiah and following after Him. Instead, they're lining their pockets. So Jesus comes into the middle of Israel, the middle of Judaism, the middle of the worship of the people of Israel, and He judges them, not the nations. He judges the people of God because they've corrupted the worship of God. He sees their heart. So no matter how, quote-unquote, close they were to biblical Judaism, it was not true worship. And Jesus called a spade a spade. It was false. It led all the way to the practices and the rituals and the leadership. It was completely corrupt. All of this was a de defiance of biblical worship. It was a creation of a false religion. So I want to make a few points about false religion. Jesus was attacking this false religion, and I think we can see a few things in this passage about false religion. First, in false religion, good works are a pretext for selfishness. Good works are a pretext for selfishness. In all false religion, even false religions that are really close to biblical religion, close to biblical worship, in all false religion, good works are not ultimately selfless acts of worship. They are acts of selfishness. Listen very carefully. Whether you're talking about blatant false religions like Buddhism or Islam or animism, or if you're talking about false religions that say they believe the Bible, like Jehovah's Witness or Mormonism or even Catholicism, when you boil it down, they're all the same. Good works are a way to get something. I do this, I do this, now God owes me this. If I do this, I'll get something from God. I'll get something. That's all false religion in a nutshell. If you read all the doctrines of false religions, if you read their leaders, if you listen to their teaching, what you will find is that all good things that they do are motiva motivated selfishly. These religions we see today are no different than the false religion of Jesus' day. Now, you may ask, well, Pastor John, what about when the Bible talks about rewards? We even talked about reward in, in the Bible, and Jesus talks about reward. Isn't there rewards in the end? Yes, the Bible does talk about it. You also notice that at the end, we cast our rewards at the feet of Jesus. And, of course, the greatest reward that we have is being with Jesus to worship Him for eternity. It is not something we get. It is worshiping Jesus. It is honoring Him, giving all of our praise to Him. Why? Because we know that any good we did here on earth 
is simply God working in us to will and to work His good pleasure. That's Philippians 2.13. It's not to get something from Him, but in all false religion, good works are a means to selfish ends. And Jesus makes this clear by storming the temple. And what's His lesson? He gives a, a sermon there. His, Sermon summarized by, summarized by Isaiah 56, 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. This place should be all about worship. Prayer is a subset of worship. Worship is all of life lived in glory of God. Prayer, singing, of course, praise is one way we do that. Prayer is another way that we worship God. This is all about worship. My house should be about worship. It should be about giving, not getting. These leaders, this false religion has turned it into getting. They're using the veneer, they're using the practices of Judaism, they're using some elements of Judaism, to, and they've turned it into some, some way that they get something. It's all about getting. No matter how many people thought how righteous they were and how good they were, it was all about getting something. Again, I think this is why Jesus attacks the leaders so severely and why we ourselves should be merciless when it comes to false religion and the false teachers within false religions. Not the people, but false religions and false teachers. Usually, like the people that Jesus ministers to here, they're suffering, really, in order to line the pockets of the false teachers. The first year I lived here, uh, my next-door neighbor was a very devout Mormon. We talked a lot. He's a very friendly guy, and we talked a lot. Very involved in the Mormon church. We discussed at length each other's religions. We knew we were both trying to convert one another, and we laughed about it from time to time and, and shared with one another what we believed. And He didn't break down at all. In fact, sad to report, he never did turn to Christ, but he did make an admission one time. He said he was involved in the gathering of money with the Mormon church for a little while, and he saw all the money that was going in, he began to do the math and began to see some of the numbers of all the billions of dollars that are sent to Salt Lake City to a group of people who decide how much to pay themselves, what they want to do with the money, and he said that was the one thing that sort of bothered him about Mormonism. This is what false teachers do Today, it's what false teachers did in Jesus' day. They say to people, well, it's in your benefit. If you give us money, we'll give you something in return. You'll, you'll get this. I remember Robert Tilton. Remember Robert Tilton? I don't know if anybody saw the Tootin' Tilton tapes, but they went out at one point. You can Google that and figure out what that is. But Robert Tilton was uh, a false teacher in the 80s, and he would give you a rag that he blessed. And there would be more blessing on that rag if you gave more money. This is all lining his pocket. What a corrupt thing. False teachers say, you'll be blessed if you give us money. You'll be blessed if you line our pockets. You'll be blessed. And people just blindly sort of follow along this way, sadly. What these men do, what these false religions do is sell you on a version of religion. Even if it has biblical language involved, they sell you on a version of religion that is nothing but selfishness. It's all about getting something. Godliness, doing what's right, living right, is all a pretext 
for selfishness. And you could just go down the doctrine of all the false religions and discover that this is, this is what they all teach. This is essentially what they all teach. Number two, the biblical Jesus is hated. Look at verse 14. And the blind, man, blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children cried in the temple, Hosanna, the son of David, they were indignant. The word means that they burned inside. They got hot. They got angry. It's interesting, this, is, this anger is associated not with the turning over of the tables, though I'm sure they were angry about that already. It was anger because he's healing people and blessing people and receiving the praise of people. They got jealous. They got frustrated. They were angry. I remember a few years ago, I was talking to a pastor, uh, not here, it was a different church, a different location. It was a pastor who was a church was pretty close to mine. He had no idea that I'm a Jesus-loving, Bible-thumping, Bible-expositor. He didn't have any idea of that. He assumed that I was like a lot of preachers today, do everything to avoid biblical doctrine, just do sort of group therapy on Sunday morning to try to get as many people as possible. And he launched, he, thinking I was like that, he launched into a diatribe with plenty of anger and mockery about those preachers who quote, believe in hell, believe in blood atonement, and think Jesus is the only way to God. Now, it took him about a year, but he discovered that I was one of those preachers. And the reason I know he discovered it is I found out that he was on sort of a smear campaign of me and our church. He was going around in anger, talking about us, talking about me, talking about our church. I actually tried to get a few of our church members to leave. You see, it's not enough in false religion just to leave it alone. You believe what I believe, and we'll just leave you alone. That supposedly is the standard of false religion. But again, particularly with leadership, not the people, but particularly with the leadership, there is anger, there is hatred, there is vitriol toward the truth, particularly Jesus. Why? Because truth condemns them. The biblical Jesus is a threat to them. He takes money out of their pocket. He takes people out of their pews. And so they're threatened and they hate Him for it. They don't want anyone to follow Him. Again, they would say out loud, professing that they are Christian. There are many, church, many religions that are false religions that are called Christian. But ultimately, they reject the biblical Jesus. They fashion a new Jesus. A Jesus that's more palatable for man, a Jesus that's more acceptable, more politically correct, more woke, to use today's vernacular. Listening to one of these woke pastors recently, he was preaching in a sermon that men and women are equal before God, and that is true. That is a truth we all affirm. In Christ, there are no Jews, Greeks. There are no male, female. God doesn't favor genders over one another. I firmly believe that. But then he took it a step too far. He said, the Bible is the most feminist book there is. And Jesus preached feminism. First, I would suggest that he actually study the history of feminism. It takes you back in a long line of wicked women, not just kind people who preach for rights, which are good, wicked women like Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, 
you realize that one of her objectives, the founder of Planned Parenthood, one of her objectives was to kill as many black babies as possible to solve the black problem in America. And yet people give millions to political parties that support Planned Parenthood. Wicked, wicked, wicked women who are the founders of feminism. Why would a preacher ever want to identify the Bible or Christianity with feminism? Well, that's the woke thing to do. That brings people in, supposedly. It proves somehow that you're cultured or you're modern. Well, it didn't surprise me when I found out later this preacher who preached this sermon had a long, illustrious history of angrily attacking pastors and churches like ours. Why? Because the biblical Jesus is a threat to them. It literally takes money out of their pocket. It takes people out of their pews. It wins people over from that satanic way of doing Christianity and brings them to the true Christ. He wants to gain a following. He wants to gain money, and the preaching of Jesus threatens that possibility, and so he hates Jesus for it. Well, the chief priests and the scribes were no different. Jesus was a threat to their popularity. He was a threat to the money that they made there on Passover weekend and other times, and they hated him for it. False religion is okay with a false Jesus, but they hate a biblical Jesus. Finally, what do we see? Look at verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. Number three in false religion, plain truth is obscured. These children, and the word is masculine there, so it could have been a group of young boys, much like Jesus was when he came to the temple as a 12-year-old. These boys were repeating the song from the day before, the Hosanna to the son of David, perhaps remembering those praises and they worship Jesus. Perhaps it was shallow. We don't know. It doesn't really matter. Not really to the point of the, the passage here. These kids, though, at least saw the basic truth of Jesus. He's the son of David. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. He should be worshiped. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not some nuanced, complicated, woke philosophy. Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He came to the world, lived a perfect life, was tortured and crucified and rose again. With His life, He provided perfect righteousness to cover us before God. With His death, He paid the penalty of our sin. And with His resurrection, He provides us life eternal. That's the simple gospel. And every false religion confuses, misconstrues, obscures, hides, is embarrassed of these basic truths of the gospel. It's so simple, even these children understand it. It's so simple, the gospel can be captured by very small children. People who have been far away from God can begin to understand the basics of the gospel. But even those basics are obscured in false religion. False religion, no matter how close they are to these things, no matter how much overlap you can find between a false religion and biblical truth, they obscure the simple truths of the gospel. Folks, what is truth mixed with error? Error. It's that simple. 
Don't give me that old trope. Well, you know, there's good in everything. There's good in this religion. Yeah, you know what? Even if the chocolate chips aren't tainted in a cookie laced with cyanide, you're not going to eat it. You're not going to say, well, there's some good in this cookie. No, there's not. Run from it. Flee from it. Don't ingest it. Again, we are to live at peace with people, especially people who are caught up, sadly, in these false religions. But when it comes to false religion itself and the false teachers who propagate the false religions, we flee it. We should have the same attitude Jesus demonstrates here as He prepares the people and prepares His own heart for the crucifixion. When it comes to false religion, we are to flee it with righteous, righteous indignation, as Jesus did. And if you're not a believer, if you're not a true believer yet, run to Jesus. Run away from whatever false religion you're clinging on to, even if it's your own self-made religion. Believe in His life, His death, His resurrection. Commit your life to these truths, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your truth, and Lord, just the the anger that Jesus would have against this false religion, I believe, is flowing from a love and a mercy that He has for all those who are caught up. And so, Lord, may we see in Jesus' righteous indignation and His determination to be theologically sound and to be committed to the truths of Scripture, may we see that as an act of love and kindness. And may we take that love and kindness and spread it to those who are caught up in false religions, even false religions that sound or overlap very in major ways with our own beliefs. And we call them away. Just listening to that passage from Jude earlier, this mercy, this kindness to call people out of the false beliefs, out of the deadly, demonic false beliefs that look so much like they are right, even so much like they are biblical. And maybe call them away from these things to the one true God. And I pray, Lord, if those there are those here listening and watching perhaps, and they don't know you, they've never truly believed in Christ, I pray that they would flee the religion maybe even of their own heart, the religion that they've construed in their own heart and somehow get them off the hook or somehow makes, gives them confidence that they'll be okay in the end. Lord, I pray that they would abandon that and believe in the one true God. They would understand Christ provided the life, the righteousness they need to cover them, the death that would cover them, and the new life the eternal life, lived in relationship and worship of God that is granted to them if they would only have faith in Jesus. All of this we ask in His name. Amen. All right, stand with me if you will. Time of benediction. Go from this place knowing that false prophets and teachers and religions will arise and seek to lead you astray. But carry the assurance that all those who are in Christ, by the power and prayers of Christ, will persevere to the end. Amen. Amen.